Catholic History Trek, a podcast exploring the Catholic past. What you just heard in the background of our intro is an example of Gregorian chant, the most common and venerable, though certainly not the only form of liturgical music in the history of the Catholic Church. I'm Kevin Schmeising, back with my co-host, Scott Schulze, and we're talking in this episode about the history of liturgical music. A few notes before we get going. Although there's a lot of content here, we recognize that this is still just an overview that skims the surface. There may well be separate podcasts coming in the future on individual topics such as chant or palestrina or sacrosanctum concilium or heaven knows what else. We really don't know where this podcast is going. But that leads me to the second point. At the end of every episode, Maria ushers us out and gives our email address, catholichistorytrek at gmail. We'd love to hear from you. If you notice that we make mistakes, which is not just possible, but probable, feel free to send us an email about it. But especially feel free to send us suggestions. If you have ideas for topics for future podcasts, something you're interested in or something you think we should cover so that other people can hear about it, please send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Without further ado, to get us started in our rapid survey of the history of music in the Catholic liturgy, I'm going to turn it over to a guy who has to be one of the world's foremost experts on the subject of Catholic chapel cars. So while the very first Christians did not use chapel cars, they did use music. And to get a very good idea of what these earliest Christians did, it's beneficial to look at some of the Jewish customs, since the very first Christians were of Jewish origin. So if we turn to the pages of the Old Testament, we see many examples of singing and music for the praising of God. In the Pentateuch, we see examples such as in Exodus 15, where Moses and the Israelites are singing a song of praise. In Deuteronomy 31, we see where God is giving Moses a song to write down and teach. And then in Deuteronomy 32, we see this song, which is generally called the Song of Moses. And it's interesting to note that these songs of praise in the Mosaic Law don't reference instruments in the liturgy. But that is a tradition that seems to have changed with King David adding instruments, and many of the Psalms do list musical instruments to accompany the singer, such as flutes, harps, lyre, tambourine, timbrel, trumpet, etc. And the Old Testament does mention music in other places, such as Judges, Chronicles, and various writings of the prophets, which show the, the later use of these instruments added to the singing. One example I wanted to share was in Second Chronicles chapter 29, which shows how this music accompanied the sacrifice. So kind of paraphrasing, it says, He had bidden the Levites to take their stations there in the Lord's house with cymbals, harp, and zither, Levites with instruments, priests with trumpets. Burnt sacrifice began, loud echoed their praises and music, till all the sacrifice was over. And in addition to these biblical examples of praise and burnt offerings, music also accompanied part of the major Jewish festivals, such as the Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And this practice of utilizing the music in the worship of God was continued by these first followers of Christ, trekking to the New Covenant from their Jewish roots. In the New Testament, we see examples such as the earliest Christian singing. If you look at Matthew 26, 30 or Mark 14, 26, we have this passage which reads essentially, and so they sang a hymn and went out to Mount Olivet. So in this passage, we see in sacred scripture, which this would have been during the Last Supper, 
we have an account of Jesus and his apostles singing, presumably Psalms 113 to 118, which formed the Hillel, which was traditionally sung during the Passover. And there's also many other examples in Paul's epistles, mentioning singing praise and thanks to God through the Psalms and other hymns. And interesting to note that even though the New Testament does reference music, it makes no mention of musical instruments, and the earliest Christians actually banned the use of musical instruments in their liturgies. And these earliest Christians basically came up with three different types of liturgical songs, which are essentially the three main types we have today. You had psalms, canticles, and hymns. Psalms, as they sound like, are the 150 psalms of the Old Testament, which are often attributed to King David. Canticles are essentially sung text of the Bible. Hymns, those are basically new songs which are not a direct line-for-line -line singing of the Bible. And these use both the classical Greek and the Hebrew poetic forms by the early church when they were composed. And speaking of hymns, four of the earliest surviving hymns are referenced in a book called the Apostolic Constitutions as daily prayers. The Apostolic Constitutions, which I mentioned in our fasting podcast, was a early church canon law dating back to around the year 400 A.D., and in this, it references the morning prayer, evening prayer, before meals prayer, and the candle lighting prayer, which would be later in the day when you would light your candles. This candle lighting prayer, also called the Fos Hilarion, is perhaps the best known of these. It's considered the earliest non-biblical Christian hymn. It's also considered the most rhythmical of the four, and supposedly was composed by a saint on his way to martyrdom. And so the Christians who are accompanying him would have written it down, recorded it, and it became part of their prayers and song. And the one th reason I wanted to mention the Apostolic Constitutions is we can actually learn more about the singing of the early church from this work, where it directed Christians to frequent the church daily, praying and singing psalms, to sing for the martyrs, to sing the hymns of David. And I like this, they it commanded them to not sing heathen or obscene songs, not just liturgically, but anytime. And then I like uh, in Book 8 where it provides a specific point in the Mass where they had singing. Kind of pulling this line from that book, it says, After all have partaken of the Eucharist, let the deacon carry what remains to the vestry, and when the singer has done, let the deacon say, and then it goes on to specify what the post-communion prayer was, which was led by the deacon. And I wanted to point that out because it mentions the singer, the Apostolic Constitutions, has more to say about this role of singer, which is a clerical office of cantor, as we now would refer to it. The specifications laid out in the Apostolic Constitutions regarding the cantor show that the early church took this role of the liturgical singing quite seriously, which fits well into the famous line of St. Augustine, or St. Augustine, if you like, who lived during this period when he states, he who sings prays twice. So some of the rules that were laid out for the cantor were that the cantor and laity were mentioned separately, so it points out that there is this office of cantor, it's not just a member of the laity. The cantor, along with the porters and lectors, etc., were listed as unordained lower ranks of the clergy. They could only be married once, which was a rule also applied to the lectors. They were not to baptize, which was reserved for the higher ranks, the bishop, priests, deacons. And some of my favorites, if the cantor gets drunk, he was to be suspended. And one of the canonical penalties, which we mentioned in our Think Fast podcast on fasting, is if the cantor did not fast for the 40 days of Lent and did not fast on Wednesday and Friday, he was to be deprived. 
So clearly they took it seriously, and then 50 years later at the Council of Chalcedon, they also gave instructions regarding the cantors and electors, whether they could marry or not marry. Over the next few centuries after this time, the musical forms of Christian music took shape with two main styles, essentially responsorial and antiphony. Responsorial was solo singing with a refrain from the congregation, and probably the best modern example would be if you go to the Novus Ordo Mass, they have a responsorial psalm between the first and second readings. So the cantor, the one who's leading the choir, would sing the main part, and then the congregation responds with the responsorial part of that psalm. The other form, antiphon, involves two alternating choirs. So if you imagine something like a monastic church where you have rows of seats lined facing each other, you have like a left half and a right half, I guess, of the church. So they would alternate singing the psalms or singing part of the hymn. And so that was, uh, so those were the two main forms they started to develop by the fourth century in the East, especially in the monasteries of Syria and Egypt, you had further developments. One of them was the Alleluia chant, which was a long melismatic composition, which melismatic just means you have multiple notes sung to one syllable, uh, which, had actually been recounted by St. Jerome when he was in Bethlehem, which we need to get to that when we talk about our history of the Bible. But this Alleluia chant was adopted by Pope Damasus in Rome in the late 300s, and he was he introduced it to the West. Originally, it was sung during Easter, and then its use and popularity grew to Paschal time, and then essentially all year except for penitential times like Septuagesima and later just Lent. The other development in the East in the fourth century was Antiphon, which I mentioned previously. And if you have ever seen the works or heard the works of, say, Ephraim the Syrian, his hymns are composed in Antiphony. Even though he wasn't writing liturgically, it does show its use at this time. Uh, around the same time, another character from another one of our podcasts, St. Ambrose of Milan, in the year 386, if you recall, he was in our Popes versus Kings podcast, where he was uh, facing off with the Emperor Theodosius, he made some changes to the West. He imported a liturgy of St. Barnabas from the East, which is now commonly called the Ambrosian Rite, which still exists to this day. So St. Ambrose of Milan introduced Antiphon to the West, and in the West at that time, they were predominantly using responsorial chant. So he brought in this Antiphon to complement, go with this responsorial chant, and that eventually became called Ambrosian chant, which was the introduction of hymnody and metrical hymns to the West. In addition to the Ambrosian rite and Ambrosian chant, there's another ancient liturgy from the same time called the Gallican liturgy, which had Gallican chant, which spread either from Leon or Milan after originating in the East in Ephesus. And a few centuries later, there was another rite called the Mozarabic rite with the Mozarabic chant, which originated around Toledo, it should specify Toledo, Spain, not Ohio. For any of our Ohio listeners, Toledo, Ohio is not a hotbed of early church chant. By the 5th century, the late 5th and early 6th century, you had the development of what was called the scola. That began to replace the laity as the singers of the chants and the refrains. And by this time, both antiphon and responsorial chants were being sung at Mass. And they established essentially the two main forms of liturgical music for the Catholic Mass heading into the liturgical period. And so during these late centuries of the pre-medieval period, you had slight tweaks to the types and lengths of music. You had documents referring, you know, are we going to do more on the gradual or the introit? 
communion, doxology, offertory, et cetera. You just had slight tweaks, but essentially everything was in place up until the medieval times where I will hand it over to Kevin, who's going to give us yet further changes proceeding after the 5th century. So our next stage then is the medieval period, which is roughly 500 to 1500, those thousand years. Oh, and I will mention, by the way, since Scott uh, fired a little barb at Toledo there, I just have to say that uh, it may not be a hotbed of (laughs) liturgical music, but it does have a magnificent cathedral, the Diocese of Toledo, Ohio. So if you get a chance to visit that. So church music in the medieval period, well, a major figure here is Pope St. Gregory the Great. His pontificate was 590 to 604. He was the first monk pope, and he brought with him to the papacy from his monastery an appreciation for the chanting tradition of the monasteries. But confusingly, the type of chant attached to his name, Gregorian, is probably not exactly what he promoted. Instead, it was a somewhat different form, now called Roman or Old Roman chant. But it's close enough to Gregorian chant not to concern us for the purposes of this survey of liturgical music. So chant is monophonic, which means there's a single line of melody, no harmonies. Some of this Scott was hinting at earlier. It's thus a form of plain song or also sometimes called plain chant, and all of this is just to distinguish it from homophony or polyphony, which are forms of music that most of us in the contemporary world are more familiar with. So homophony would be um, a single line of melody, a single tune that has harmonies written along with it, but there's basically one line of melody and other notes that harmonize with it, whereas polyphony, technically speaking, would be multiple melodic lines um, going along in during the same song. Um, so sometimes polyphony is used more loosely to include homophony so that any kind of harmonic movement or more than one part, more than a single line of notes rising and falling um, is called polyphony. But in any case, there is that technical distinction. Gregorian chant is closely associated with the liturgy, and with the Roman liturgy in particular. So as Scott was laying out, there were various forms of liturgy in the early church, and thus various forms of chant. Those two things tended to be linked. And so as the Roman liturgy spread through Europe, the Roman chant, or Gregorian chant, did also. And this process was abetted by the rise of political unity in Christendom, specifically the development of the Holy Roman Empire under the Carolingian dynasty. Think of Charles the Great, Charlemagne, who was crowned Holy Roman Emperor in the year 800. There are various institutions in the West, in the Western world, of which the United States is a part, um, that we kind of take for granted or see as just part and parcel of our existence at this point and don't realize that they had their origins in the church or in Christianity, Catholicism specifically. And an example of that, I think, is the university. Uh, People who attending or familiar with colleges and universities today don't realize that the university, as we think of it, is basically a function of schools, universities that arose as church institutions. Musical notation is another example of this. If you take any piece of music, a secular piece of music today, a piece of sheet music, and look at it 
Its appearance is what developed from Catholic liturgical music during the Middle Ages. It started more simply as a series of nooms or simple marks above the lyrics. At that point, if you were reading this and singing it, you still had to memorize the tune because the intervals and the pitch were not indicated. But later, a staff or the lines of music uh, were added, and originally four lines, later the five lines that we're familiar with today. Additional notations were added gradually over the centuries to indicate pitch, length of notes, eventually harmonies, tempo, dynamics, all of those things that go into a complex piece uh, of musical notation today. But all of this had its origins with monks writing notation above the psalms or whatever they were singing um, in their monasteries in the Middle Ages. As early as the 9th century, we begin to see examples of organum, or an early form of harmony. This, what this would do is take plain chant, the single melodic line, and add another line that was often just a voice singing a harmonious interval below or above an octave or maybe a perfect fifth, so like a C and a G, for those of you who are familiar with music, just a classic harmony. So this is what would be considered homophony, because they're singing the same words at the same, the same tempo, the same rhythm, um, and simply um, adding a different note that harmonizes, not yet polyphony. Then around the 1200s, polyphony begins to emerge. Polyphony, as I indicated earlier, multiple melody voices, sometimes mirroring each other, sometimes following each other, sometimes more disparate, but usually unifying at the end of a piece at least, if not once or twice or more times over the course of the piece as well. Now this, as liturgical music, polyphony was initially opposed as an innovation. In the 1320s, it was banned from the liturgy by Pope John XXII, but subsequent popes gradually accepted it, and at this point, polyphony is considered a very traditional Catholic form of music. Polyphony reached its apex, arguably, in the time of Giovanni Palestrina, a composer who lived during the 1500s. Palestrina became choir master of the Capella Giulia. This was the official choir of St. Peter's Basilica. He left hundreds of compositions, most of them liturgical music, the various parts of the Mass, the Kyrie, Gloria, Sanctus, Agnus Dei. I've sung one of his polyphonic hymns, the Sicut Cervus, which is Psalm 42, as the deer longs for the water, so my soul longs for you, O God. We don't have a piece of Palestrina handy. Of course, you can find it easily enough online, but I do have a sample of an Ave Maria by Jacob Arkadelt, who was a contemporary of Palestrina. This was sung by the Schmiesing family, a few years back, we this is not um, professional rec recording studio quality, but hopefully it will at least give you um, some idea of what this kind of music sounded like. Yeah. 
By the time of Palestrina, another important movement was in the works that had implications for church music. That was the Protestant Reformation. There were lots of differences among the various reformers on music. Martin Luther, as in many other things, liturgically speaking, was closer to the Catholic view. He thought music was important to the liturgy, and he retained some chanting in Lutheran services, but he also emphasized the vernacular language and the participation of the congregation. So, this is the beginning of the development of hymnody in vernacular languages. In German, in Martin Luther's case, think, for example, of Ein Festeburg ist unser Gott. That's a mighty fortress is our God, which many listeners will be familiar with. Other reformers were more iconoclastic in their approach. They valued simplicity above all else in the liturgy, and so they stripped the altars, they removed the statues, they also forbade music from being a part of the liturgy. So these two traditions the banning of music and the use of music approximating a Catholic use both survived and everything in between have all continued down to the present. Most Protestants do have some church music in their liturgy, but again, it varies widely from restriction to chanting psalms, um, a cappella on the one hand to rock band praise and worship on the other. What was the Catholic response to the Reformation? Well, the Council of Trent, the great counter-Reformation council, emphasized the continuing importance of music, but it also emphasized that the text should be clear, that the words of the text, the meaning, should not be lost in overly complex tunes that accompanied them. So one strand of response to the Reformation was the continuation of wonderful polyphony, such as Thomas Tallis in England, who was another Palestrina contemporary, who continued con to compose polyphony, but also emphasized the understandability of the words that accompanied it. But Catholic music also went in another direction, which was Baroque. Some composers of the 1600s and 1700s reacted to the starkness of the Reformation by instead going full ornate, making it more complex and more florid. Johann Sebastian Bach is a great example of this. He's a kind of embodiment of the Reformation, counter-Reformation dynamic. He was a Lutheran himself, but he composed mostly for a Protestant-turned-Catholic king. His famous Mass in B minor was composed initially for parts of the Mass that were common to Catholic and Lutheran liturgies. The Mass in B minor is extremely long and complicated. It's beautiful music, but it's extremely long and complicated. It's designed for a full choir and orchestra. Obviously, this is impractical to be used for actual liturgies. Parts of the Mass have been used in church services, but in its entirety, I'm not sure it's ever been used actually for a liturgy. The next council after Trent that would deal with music would be the Second Vatican Council some 400 years in the future. But some things happened in between. And to fill us in on that, turn it back to Scott. Thanks, Kevin. And before I jump in, I just want to say I enjoyed listening to the Schmiesing family singers on the Ave Maria. And I think you guys are going to give the Von Trapp family singers a run for their money. Oh, thank you, Scott. So I will begin my mention of these 20th century music reforms in 18th century France, obviously. During the French Revolution, when the public practice of religious vows wasn't exactly something that guaranteed you would live to see tomorrow, many religious buildings had been left empty due to the martyred and fleeing religious. One such location was Soliam Abbey, 
which had been abandoned since the late 18th century. Nearly half a century later, in the 1830s, Prosper Louis Pascal Garanger, commonly known as Dom Garanger, saved the abbey from impending demolition by seeking and receiving permission from Rome to head up a new Benedictine order headquartered at the abbey. One of Garanger's primary works was to restore the liturgy and restore Gregorian chant. As a result of this endeavor, Solaim became the central hub for old manuscripts, for study, and for the restoration of Gregorian chant. And several of the monks at the abbey became renowned experts on chant, and in 1904, Pope Pius X even appointed one of them to head the Vatican's official liturgical restoration of chant. And speaking of Pope Pius X, a year before, in 1903, he released the motu proprio Trale Selectitudini, in which he called for a restoration and promotion of Gregorian chant as the liturgical music of the church. Summarizing the motu proprio, some of the highlights I'd like to point out, he stated, Gregorian chant is the supreme model and proper to the Roman church. And the further church music deviates from chant, the less worthy it is for mass. Seminaries must cultivate chant. The Scola Cantorum is to be established in parish churches. He also stated that cl classic polyphony and palestrina are worthy of a place alongside Gregorian chant, although still reserving Gregorian chant as that supreme model. He, he also said the church does favor the progress of arts and therefore allows for modern music in church, but warns that greater care needs to be given since modern music originates from profane uses. Profane in this case basically meaning anything that was not, that was not made for mass. It wasn't made for liturgical, so you're adapting it from the outside world into the liturgy. He affirms that Latin is the language of the mass and forbade singing in the vernacular. He also affirmed that singers had a liturgical office, which we detailed earlier, referring to the office of the cantor, dating back to the first few centuries of the church, and therefore he limited the role of singing in the church to men. And also going back to the early centuries, the Pope points out that music proper to the church is purely vocal, although he did permit for the organ, but only as accompaniment to the primary role of vocals. And he went so far as to forbid piano, as well as instruments he labeled as noisy or frivolous, such as drums, cymbals, and bells. And finally, he forbid the use of bands playing music during the liturgy. One final pre-Vatican II title and note on liturgical music is the 1935 work by Romano Guardini called The Spirit of the Liturgy. This is not to be confused with Cardinal Ratzinger's book of the same title, which was released in the year 2000. A couple points I wanted to highlight from Guardini's Spirit of the Liturgy are Guardini's contrast of Catholic and Protestant worship, where he viewed the the individualistic nature in Protestant worship and compared it to the origin of Catholic worship, which he said emanated from the twofold nature of man as both social and solitary. And kind of with that in mind, Gordini also sees the primary and exclusive aim of the liturgy as the church's public and lawful act of worship in which God is to be honored by the body of the faithful who derives sanctification from this act of worship. What this means is that the rules and forms of the liturgy were not to be taken lightly. So, with this backdrop of Garanger, Pius X, and Guardini, 
I'll now hand it over to Kevin, who will take us to the Vatican, to the Second Vatican Council and for the most recent developments in liturgical music. One of the four major constitutions promulgated by the Second Vatican Council was one on the sacred liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, its Latin title. It was promulgated in December of 1963, and it has a chapter, chapter 6, on sacred music. And I think this section of Sacrosanctum can be seen in a way as a culmination of the liturgical reform that Scott was alluding to earlier. At the same time, it loosened some of the restrictions that Scott was describing that had been applied by Pope Pius X. Chapter 6 of Sacrosanctum begins this way. The musical tradition of the universal church is a treasure of inestimable value, greater even than that of any other art. The main reason for this preeminence is that as sacred song united to the words, it forms a necessary or integral part of the solemn liturgy. The document recommends the use of music in masses, the training in music at seminaries, the formation of choirs in parishes, and active participation of the assembly of the faithful. From here, I'd like to read just a few passages from Sacrosanctum, because I think it describes well what the council intended in this document. And so I'll provide these quotations without commentary as a description of what the council envisioned liturgical music being in the post-Vatican II period. The Church acknowledges Gregorian chant as specially suited to the Roman liturgy. Therefore, other things being equal, it should be given pride of place in liturgical services. But other kinds of sacred music, especially polyphony, are by no means excluded from liturgical celebrations, so long as they accord with the spirit of the liturgical action as laid down in Article 30. So Article 30 came earlier, and this is what it said. To promote active participation, the people should be encouraged to take part by means of acclamations, responses, psalmody, antiphons, and songs, as well as by actions, gestures, and bodily attitudes. And at the proper times, all should observe a reverent silence. So you can see the way that the document is invoking the ancient tradition of music in the liturgy, as Scott described at the very beginning of the podcast. Regarding the language to be used... The document refers to number 54, which says this, the use of the Latin language is to be preserved in the Latin rites. But since the use of the mother tongue, whether in the mass, the administration of the sacraments, or other parts of the liturgy frequently may be of great advantage to the people, the limits of its employment may be extended. So Latin would be preserved, but the vernacular could be used more extensively than it had been. And finally, this quotation, in the Latin church, the pipe organ is to be held in high esteem, for it is the traditional musical instrument which adds a wonderful splendor to the church's ceremonies and powerfully lifts up man's mind to God and to higher things. But other instruments also may be admitted for use in divine worship. This may be done, however, only on condition that the instruments are suitable or can be made suitable for sacred use. So that's the gist of chapter 6 of Sacrosanctum, the Second Vatican Council's document on the liturgy. It was followed up in 1967 by Musicum Sacrum. That was an, the instruction on music in the liturgy, which was formulated by the Sacred Congregation of Rites and approved by Pope Paul VI. It essentially repeated the principles of Sacrosanctum, it expanded on some of them, and then laid out how the process of implementing these norms would proceed in individual nations and dioceses. 
Now, Scott, I know you and I both grew up in the same liturgical world. It's the world that followed immediately after the Second Vatican Council, the 70s and 80s. And we had a similar experience, I know, because we've talked about this before in conversation. Both of us read this document from the Second Vatican Council sometime later in our 20s or 30s, and when we did, we were surprised at what we found because it didn't seem to match the experience that we had had in our parishes. So, for example, Gregorian chant, which was, as I just read, to have pride of place, was largely absent in our experience. The organ, which was held in high esteem, fell into almost complete disuse in many places in favor of other instruments. And the use of Latin, which was to be preserved, as Sacrosanctum said, was almost never heard. Now, I'm sure that the experience of you and me was not universal, but I'm also sure that it was very widespread, at least in the American church. What did happen in the post-Vatican II era, there was a flourishing of English hymnody to meet the demand for vernacular music that arose after the council. One result was that many hymns were borrowed from the Lutheran and Anglican traditions, because those are places where the vernacular hymnody had already been going on for a hundred years. So we needed English stuff fast, and so we used a lot of Lutheran and Anglican hymns. Another major figure here was Omer Westendorf, whose name still appears. If you look at uh, many hymnals or missalettes, you'll see his name all over the place, Westendorf and World Library Publications. He composed a lot of English hymns uh, in the years immediately following the Second Vatican Council, sent forth by God's blessing, Gift of Finest Wheat, or a couple of the most popular. You're probably familiar with them. Also, praise and worship, a style associated with Protestant churches, became common in many Catholic churches, and some Catholics composed similar types of music. I think, for example, of the St. Louis Jesuits, who composed a lot of well-known praise and worship tunes that, Scott, you and I sang in our parishes in the 70s and 80s. Think here, for example, of Here I Am, Lord. So we're getting close to the present at this point, and it's dangerous as a historian to comment on history when it's so near, but it does seem as though in the last maybe 20 or 30 years there has been something of a reaction or a swing of the pendulum, fostered in part by Pope John Paul II and even more so by Pope Benedict XVI, who encouraged more traditional expressions in the liturgy, and so it's my sense and my experience that more parishes are doing something closer to the description given by Sacrosanctum Concilium. That is to say, there's more Latin in the Mass, there's more chant, there's more a cappella, or at least where there's not a cappella, there's more organ rather than other instruments like piano or guitar. So that's my closing reflection. Scott, do you have anything to say before we wrap this one up? Yeah, I would definitely agree with your comments of our experience as children of the post-Vatican II era. And it's almost like we are living on a sci-fi show, bridging two alternate realities. You have this reality of what we experienced at church for most of our lives, and then this alternate, almost surreal reality of the documents and the historical development of liturgical music. And almost like they're trying to occupy the same time and space. So yeah. Catholic history, Catholic history track now as the Twilight Zone. And probably the one disappointment, the only thing I think we probably could have done differently or maybe somehow overlooked is we somehow failed to mention the ever-essential polka mass in our survey of liturgical music. 
Scott, you had that in an early outline for this episode, <laughs> and I discreetly deleted that somewhere along the line in the process. So, but here it is. Um, and listeners, you'll find out whether we decide to edit that out or leave it in to be decided. But accepting that one oversight, I think we made a solid attempt at covering the ever-changing rubrics of the Catholic Church's liturgical music over the past 2,000 years. And as Kevin alluded to earlier, some of these, many of these topics certainly have the potential to become future episodes within themselves. But that is another episode for another day. And with this episode drawing to a close, as much, well, maybe Kevin want to more than I would, I'm not sure. We will avoid the temptation to chant our closing prayer. Rather, I figured we would just pray it as is our tradition. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritui Sancto. Secret erit in principio et nunc et semper et in secula seculorum. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at catholichistorytrek at gmail.com. <laughs>